We're closing our series today called Triumph Through the Tears, and I hope that as you've been with us that you've understood a few things about what we've talked about. We've talked about the fact that it's okay to be honest with God. If you read the Psalms, you recognize those folks who wrote those things were pretty honest with the Lord when they're going through some very difficult situations. We have this fear, I think, that if we really told God what was on our minds, that somehow we would offend Him, somehow we would uh, need to dodge the next lightning bolt that is thrown from heaven. And I, I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where either one of those is really the case. In fact, He invites us to be honest with Him. And, and so through all of that, though, we realize that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, there is hope. And that's what each of the lament psalms in the book of Psalms is about. Yes, there's honesty. Yes, there's a pouring out of, of the heart. But there's also a ray of hope at the end of, the, of each one of those. What we've dealt with so far in the four messages leading up to this one are, are tears that have come because of things that have happened to us from the outside in. Circumstances that maybe you had no control over. Something happened to you. Something physically, something mentally. Uh, circumstances of life conspired against you, people, whatever it may be. We've looked at the outward attack and how do we handle that kind of thing. So we've seen things like what do you do uh, you know, when, when depression comes, when hardship happens. And, and things that are out of your control uh, seem to attack you. Now those things, to be quite honest, are sometimes uh, a little easier to deal with than situations that we cause. Some of us this morning uh, struggle with uh, admitting or recognizing when we are the ones who cause the problem. And so until now, we've been learning how to turn to God and how to call on Him to rescue us out of a situation brought on by the actions of others, by factors we really didn't know about or couldn't control. But what do you do when you are the reason for the tears in your life? What do you do when you've caused it? What do we do when we as a church are responsible for the tears that we encounter. That's what the nation of Israel faced in Psalm chapter 80. So I want you to turn there with me, and we're going to focus there this morning. Psalm chapter 80, again, if you don't know the Bible, please do not let that stop you. Psalm, the book of Psalms is, is right in the middle. Kind of turn to the middle, you'll look for uh, the book of Psalms, spelled P-S-A-L-M, Psalms. You'll see that, Psalm chapter 80. I want us, as we, as we look at this, and I'll read the whole thing and then we'll, we'll talk about it, I, I want you to focus on the tone. Picture yourself as the writer or, or the hearer of this particular psalm. Focus on the tone of the, of the psalm. What, what seems to be the emotional tone, the mental tone of what's going on here? So I want you to listen for the mood of the author, the community that he represents as we read this. All right. So look at it, Psalm chapter 80, verse 1. Listen. Shepherd of Israel, who guides Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned on the cherubim, rise up at the head of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Rally your power and come to save us. Restore us, God. Look on us with favor, and we will be saved. Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You fed them the bread of tears and gave them a full measure of tears to drink. You set us at strife with our neighbors. Our enemies make fun of us. Restore us, God of hosts. Look on us with favor and we will be saved. You uprooted a vine from Egypt. 
You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts toward the sea and shoots toward the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its fruits? The boar from the forest gnaws at it and creatures of the field feed on it. Return, God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine. The root at your right hand, the root your right hand rather has planted. The shoot that, that you made strong for yourself. It was cut down, burned up. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand, with the son of man you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God of hosts. Look on us with favor and we will be saved. If you notice, the author here is speaking uh, in the first person plural, we. Not just I, but this is a we thing. So this is a what's known as a community lament. He is writing on behalf of the entire community of Israelites. And he's writing to, to, to express what they're feeling to God. This, of course, is a prayer. As he calls out, you see the very beginning, listen, shepherd of Israel. So he's talking to God on behalf of everyone else. And you get the tone that things aren't quite right. And it's not as if something has happened that they just couldn't control. You get the fact that the community is culpable. They've caused the issues that they're now dealing with. And so the question stands again, what do you do when you're the one? You're the reason for the tears in your life. We're going to see that from Psalm chapter 80. Now we get the sense from reading this psalm, even reading it just one time, uh, that these folks are desperate. I want to give you just this very simple, timeless truth from this ancient scripture that I think they were experiencing and that is equally true for us in our world, in our church, in our community, in our time, and that is we are in desperate need of revival. We are in desperate need of revival. Now I realize when I say the word revival to a crowd of over 100 people that that means probably 100 different things. Some of you think of revival, and you have a certain picture in your mind of a tent, and uh, it's hot, and you're sweating, and somebody's shouting at you. That's what you think of revival. I don't know. Some folks think of nights on end that you go to church not really knowing why you're going, but you go because everybody told you it's revival. we got to go. Some have a picture in your mind of something that's a little kind of crazy. Some weird stuff happens at revival, and I'm not so sure about it. Other folks, maybe you're not, not even aware of what that particular word means, but I, I want to hopefully help you understand what revival really is all about. If you look and trace what God has done in very unique and special ways throughout history, beginning, of course, in Bible times, and then subsequently after that, you get an idea that revival is not just about showing up at a certain time and having a few services. Revival is, is way beyond that. In fact, if you, if you sort of trace what are some of the, the key elements in, in the idea of revival, God bringing a new, fresh growth and desire for Him as His people, there, there's always an emphasis on the preaching of repentance. That's not, that's not something we like often. We don't like to be called out, so to speak, on our sin and told to repent. And yet, if we truly want to experience God's blessing in our church and in our lives, repentance is vital. It's necessary. You cannot receive God's blessing without it. So there's an emphasis on repentance. There's, there's a concern.
during every revival movement for personal holiness. Uh, folks would say that's people getting right with God. Now, that just means that there is a deep concern for personal holiness. Not just checking off the boxes and doing a, f- a, f- a few certain things, but truly saying, God, make me holy. There's also an openness to the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've seen that in a revival service where it was scheduled maybe to go a couple of nights and it was evident that it needed to go longer. I, I read not long ago the autobiography of Billy Graham. And if you're looking for a good read and you got some time, it's 750 pages, uh, then I'd, I'd encourage you to pick it up. It was amazing how open, and some of you were at these meetings maybe, how open they were to what the Holy Spirit was doing. Now that happened to be during certain revival services, and, and of course that's not what revival is only about, but there's always this openness Lord, you lead us. You do whatever you want to do. We don't put it in a box, God, on what you're going to do. Uh, in every revival time throughout the Bible and throughout history, there's, there's a lessened concern for tradition and a greater concern with devotion to Jesus and his mission. Our focus shifts from just tradition to Jesus himself. Our relationship with God eclipses all other concerns. And there's, there's an emphasis on spreading God's fame. Not the goal of making Christians just more comfortable in this world. It's not about emotional extremes. That's not what revival is about, just getting fired up for a little time. I remember when I was a youth pastor, we would take kids to camp. And, and we always did our altar call, if you, if you will, on Wednesday night. We were going to be there till Friday. We did it on Wednesday night uh, for, for one specific reason. If they were going to make a decision for the Lord, they had to live with it for at least two days. Think about it. They had to live with it for at least two days. They had to be around those people that if they're going to you know, sit around a campfire and throw a stick in and all that kind of stuff and sing kumbaya, rock back and forth, and all the things that you do at camp, if they were going to do that and make some grandiose decision for the Lord, I'm going to give him everything, I'm going to Africa for missions, whatever it is, at least two days they had to live with it. They couldn't just do it on Friday, you know, Friday night, and we leave the next day or whatever. They had to live with it for a while. There was some accountability built. So it's not about emotional extremes. That's not what revival is about. It may involve emotions, obviously, but it's not about that. It always begins, revival always begins with God's Word and letting that sink deep into our hearts. It, it, it begins with that wounded, humble heart repentance and humility and brokenness and submission and I'll tell you the opposite of those things are what hinders revival in our churches today we, we don't experience spiritual awakening because we're not wounded in our hearts over our sin because we don't repent because we're not humble because we're not broken because we will not submit to what God wants everything else true revival results in lasting change not just a, a few series of meetings. I found some quotes about what true revival is. If you sense the desperation here in Psalm 80, Lord, restore us, they say. Renew us, revive us. Charles Finney put it this way, Revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It's giving up one's will to God in deep humility. A fellow named Sammy Tippett put it this way, Revival is not the discovery of some new truth. It's the rediscovery of the grand old truth of God's power in and through the cross. Stephen Alford put it this way, Revival is not some emotion or worked up excitement. It is rather an invasion from heaven which brings to man a conscious awareness of God. 
I'll tell you my stance. Uh, you didn't ask for it, but, but I'll tell you anyway. Stance on revival services. I've been here four years. We've had any revival services, have we? Some of you are thinking, oh, I don't know about that guy anyway. And well, I, I get it. I know some of you don't know about me. That's okay. My stance on revival services, I'm not against them. Don't have anything in particular that's wrong with them. I don't think that, that there's any particular problem with them. In fact, I've preached a couple. That was fine. It was good. A great time. People that I was with. I think they can be helpful, but I think they can also become a crutch and just a mere tradition. I, I've seen churches that will have revival in the spring and in the fall, and nothing ever changes. Are they really having revival? Now, I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm just trying to be real. If you just have revival and you're going to schedule it and say, God, look, we're going to get together at this time, and this is the time you need to show up and do something, I'm not sure that our hearts are really open to what true revival is all about. Now, don't take me the wrong way. As I said, I preached a couple, enjoyed my time there. I felt like it was fruitful. But I'm, I'm not interested in just starting new traditions that have no meaning. What I am interested in, and I pray that you're interested in, is God's Spirit taking control of our church and leading us to a time of revival during which He creates in us a love for Him that we've never experienced before. Some folks say, well, we're going to have revival services. I hope they happen every Sunday morning. I don't mean that in a, in a cynical way. I really do hope that every Sunday morning we come with an expectation. God, as it says here, will restore us will look on us with favor. That's what I hope will happen every Sunday morning. Revival can happen at any moment, with anyone, in any location. Now, one day we may have a focused time of some, some preaching for a few nights. So don't get me wrong. But I just want you to know my heart is not just in scheduling that, but in seeing that be the life of our church. And that way if we do those things, you know what that is? Just an overflow of what God is already doing. It's an outreach then to our community. Hope you understand where I'm coming from. I think that you would agree that just like Israel in the time of this psalm, we are in desperate need of revival. But I wonder, what does that really mean and what does that really involve? Psalm chapter 80 is going to give us the answers. They called on God to restore them. There's a little bit more to that. We're in desperate need of revival, so here's what that means. The first thing is that we must be realistic about our current situation. We must be realistic about our current situation. Now look at this psalm again. For them, as the people of God, they're experiencing some sort of national crisis. Now from what I studied this week, it was kind of all over the map on what may be the, the context, the historical context, on what exactly is going on that prompts this writer to write this particular psalm on behalf of the nation. It could be they were defeated in war. could be they're being invaded. Uh, it's evident here as he talks about Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh in verse 2 that there's been the fall, the defeat of some of the other tribes. So the nation has been divided and attacked. They, they are facing, of course, and maybe already in it, an exile where they're going to be removed from their land. There is something going on. Look at verse 4. God is angry with their prayers. It's the way they feel. He's not answering their prayers. He's not responding to them in any way. You talk about a national crisis for the nation of Israel. I mean, think about it. If we as a church came together and said, it does not appear as if God is answering our prayers, and in fact, we think he's angry with our prayers. It's a crisis for them. In verse 5, they're, they're eating the bread of tears. And, and he has given, this is what he said, 
he's talking to God, you fed them the bread of tears and gave them a full measure of tears to drink. I mean, you think about the imagery there. That all they have to eat and drink is tears. All the time, it's depression. They have strife with their neighbors, it says in verse 6. Their enemies are making fun of them. If you look at verse 12, their walls are broken down. This is talking about their protection. The symbol of, of here's what God had done. He had taken them out of Egypt. He had planted them in the promised land, protected them, built strong walls up around them, and now their walls are broken down. Wild animals are destroying their nation, it says. These are the foreign countries that are invading them, ridiculing them. Verse 16, the vine that had been so fruitful before, taken from Egypt, planted in the promised land, now been cut down and burned up. These things represent the fact that God's blessing had been taken away. They're no longer enjoying His protection. They're no longer living in the land that He had promised them. And it's obvious to them they're not only in need of getting their land back, but this psalm lets them know that, that they're in a pretty sad spiritual state too. Things are not good for them. They had turned from God, they hint at. They had essentially brought this on themselves. They had to be realistic about their situation. You know, for us, people of God, we're not facing, and I mean this as the church, we are not the nation of Israel. Just make that very clear. I hope that's obvious to you. We are not the nation of Israel. So we, as a church, are not facing a national crisis in the sense of we are the nation of Israel, but we are facing a church crisis in every church in America that claims to follow Jesus Christ. We are all in this together, which, of course, then affects our nation and our world, and we have to be realistic about our situation. I mentioned last week uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Another one of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. I don't know if you've seen that one or not. Uh, I happened to I majored in history in in uh, in school in, at Murray State. I, I love the the movies that are sort of historical dramas. You know, they add a little bit here and there. It just makes it better. But but w- the great scene, of course, in uh, in Apollo 13 is where they go through the sequence of things and they're checking various instruments and a button is pushed that sets off a, a, a domino effect that eventually blows apart half the ship. And, and, and Tom Hanks, uh, who happens to play in this one as well, uh, he, he, his words are what? You remember the, the line? Jim Lovell, Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem. And he begins to describe the issues that they're dealing with. And as they work out the solution, they have to shut down quite a bit of the power in the spacecraft. And then he says, which is the most poignant line in the whole movie to me, especially affecting him, Jim Lovell, because he's already been around the moon once but not been able to land on it. He says these words, we just lost the moon. And you look at his face. This would be his opportunity to land on the moon. And he says, we just lost the moon. As they circle the moon, eventually his other partners are kind of joking around that they'd just like to go ahead and try to land on it anyway. And yet, Tom Hanks there is completely realistic. He says, no, 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 no. We've got something new we're dealing with. We have a crisis, and he will not stick his head in the sand and pretend as if it does not exist. Let me give you some things that highlight our current situation. Because we have a problem. And in one sense, we are close to losing the moon if we do not experience God's revival in our church and in the churches in our community 
and in our nation and in our world. Among children, three-fourths of children believe the following, that the devil does not exist, that Satan is merely a symbol of evil, three-fourths. Three-fourths also believe that a good person earns entry into heaven by doing enough good works, 75%. 75% believe, and these are children, believe that people are born morally neutral and make a choice to become good or bad. 75% believe that all the sacred books from the different traditions of religion, the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, and so on, are merely different expressions of the same spiritual truths and principles. Spiritual and moral truth can only be discovered, 75% say, through logic, human reason, and personal experience. Two-thirds of kids believe that praying to deceased saints can have a positive effect on your life. Two-thirds believe that the Bible discourages sin but never describes it as an innate, born-with-it kind of behavior. Half or more of all children believe this, that life either has no meaning or the meaning is realized just through hard work, which produces the resources to enjoy comfort and security. Half of our kids believe there are no absolute standards for morals or ethics, that life is a random, either a random series of acts or, or predetermined, but we have no real say in how our lives will unfold. Our decisions really don't matter whatsoever. Half say that when Jesus lived on earth, he committed sins. Half of our children believe that the Bible does not specifically condemn homosexuality. Our teenagers are not much better off. There was a study that came out that revealed the following in general about American teenagers and what they believe. They believe that God exists who created and ordered the world and he watches over human life on earth. He just watches over. He's there but not really involved. Uh, teenagers on, on average typically believe God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. That's God's goal for you, is just to be nice and to be fair to people and be a good person. Our teenagers typically believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Now, let me take an aside real quick. The idea of self-esteem, let me just, let me st I'll step out as your pastor, let me talk to parents as a parent. The idea of that we should simply be about building the self-esteem of children is a lie from Satan. Because God is not interested in our kids simply feeling good about themselves. Because if they have a realistic view of who they are apart from Jesus Christ, they will feel not good at all. They need to be humbled to the point where they see their need for Jesus Christ and give their lives to Him. And only He can validate them. Only he can then speak what is real self-worth into them. Here you go. <clears throat> Most of our teenagers believe that God does not need to be particularly in life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And most teenagers believe that good people go to heaven when they die. Uh, let me give you a little bit about the unchurched, those who are not in church. There are 195 million, that's estimated, people in our nation that do not go anywhere whatsoever. That's up to 75% or so. The U.S. population is up over the last 10 to 15 years, 11 or 12%, while church membership is down almost 10%. The net loss of over 20%. Church has failed to gain an additional 2% of the population in the last 50 years, and no one county in America 
has more churched people now than they did 10 years ago. Think about that. Not a single county in America has more people in church now than it did 10 years ago. Not even Callaway. Wonderful place, but not even us. One half of all churches in America added zero conversions last year. No one in half the churches in America came to know Jesus last year. Of the 350,000 churches in America, 80% of those are plateaued in their attendance, are declining, not gaining any ground. North America is the only continent where Christianity is not growing. We are now, in America, one of the leading receivers of missionaries. <laughs> That's amazing. How, for how long have we been sending and sending and sending, and now we are one, we're one of the nations people are coming to to do, to do missions? The United States is the third largest unchurched nation in the world. The church is largely having no effect. We have to be realistic about where we are in our situation. I don't tell you that stuff to be a downer or to smack you in the head. I don't tell you that. I just want us to know we've got to be honest about where we are. If we're going to be desperate for God to do something, we've got to identify, Lord, here's where we are. The walls are broken down. There are wild animals running through the forest, so to speak. We are not where we once were. Now, those stats can become distant, so I wonder if we evaluate on an individual level, where are you? Where am I? There was a book that came out not long ago and just identified a few things about discipleship. And, and maybe you just kind of think in your own mind and evaluate where you stand with these things. They listed a few Markers of, of quality discipleship. People were walking with Jesus. One was, was engaging with the Bible on a regular basis. I mean, if you evaluate yourself, how often do you truly engage with the Scripture? Is it, is it regular? Or is it sporadic? Is it never? Another marker, obeying God and denying self. Evaluate. Serving God and others. Sharing Jesus with other people. Literally talking about Him. Exercising faith as the foundation of all that you do. Seeking God in all things, in every decision, building relationships. Those are some things that we, we must evaluate. As a church, I want to challenge us to change the scoreboard. You realize that historically the scoreboard has always been, how many people do you have coming? How much money do you bring in? And how do your buildings look? Bodies, budget, buildings. That's the scoreboard. Listen, I get together with other pastors. If I go to the Kentucky Baptist Convention or something, inevitably, inevitably it will come up. We'll talk to somebody. Hey, how are you? You know, I'm Brad, a pastor down in Murray. And inevitably, well, how many people do you have? Well, you know, I, I tell them how many people we have. And sometimes I'll ask them. All they're doing is asking me, so I'll ask them. I know what it is. Uh, pastors, they're, 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 they're interesting now. All right? Say amen. Don't say that. But we gauge things so much just on how many people, how much money, and what our buildings look like. I want us to change the scoreboard. We count people only so we know, <laughs> do we, we need to shift anything around here? What do we, you know, we count that. We count our offering just so we've got a record of it. i just be honest with you. I find out how much the offering is when I get here and I get a bulletin of a following Sunday morning. That's when I find out. I, people, we got great people that handle that stuff. I trust it all. I want us to change the scoreboard, though, to where we have a true measure of health 
spiritual health where people are following Jesus and living on mission for Him, that's got to be what we aim for. Not just increasing our attendance. Praise God, more people come. Not just increasing offering. Hey, that's great. Not just having nice buildings. Those are wonderful. But if we do all of those things and miss the point of Scripture, we have nothing. Realize that. Nothing. And I say that as the pastor of the church, who I want people to be here. I'm glad when the offering is strong, we can do more ministry. I'm glad we have wonderful, beautiful buildings. But if that's our focus, we're missing the point. We're in desperate need of revival, but we'll never know it unless we're realistic about our current situation. Secondly, I've only got four, and the next three are short. I see you. We must also recognize who God is. We've got to be honest and realistic about where we are, absolutely. And in that, we've also got to recognize who God is. Look at verse 1. The shepherd of Israel. He's their leader. He's in charge. Who guides Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned on the cherubim. Talking about the, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Two angels spread out there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The symbolized presence of God. That's where he sits. That's his presence. Meaning that he is the ruler of heaven and on earth. He is righteous. He is the judge. He is, in verse 2, the head of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. He is the ruler of his people. Verses 4, 7, 14, and 19 will say, Lord, God of hosts, God Almighty, that's who you are. He alone is worthy of those titles. He was the one who led them out of the, the slavery in Egypt, led them to the promised land, and they knew, and they began to recognize that revival would only be possible for them when the fear of God returned. You say, fear of God, does that just mean respecting God? Certainly it's included, but the fear of God of God. He is altogether different than you and me. He is altogether different from you and me. And He is righteous and holy and perfect. And we must recognize who He is, and in so doing, that will humble us, and it may cause some fear. And that's exactly where the Bible says wisdom begins and right living begins with the fear of God. They knew that revival would only be possible when reverence for His name returned, when submission to His will returned, when a desire for His holiness returned, when an acknowledgement of His rule and His righteousness and His goodness and His mercy returned. And it's no different for us. We must recognize who God is, and He is not us. He's not you, and He's not me. Praise God, He's not. He is altogether different. And we must surrender to Him and follow Him no matter the cost. Recognizing who He is or revival will never come. Thirdly, we must also repent of our sin. What led to their disaster, their exile, their experiencing God's anger, their uprooting, their wild animal running through the forest, their being cut down and burned and them living in weakness, what was it? It was disobedience. Disobedience for them in the form of idolatry, nonchalance toward God, being influenced by other cultures, turning away from the Lord. The idea in this psalm that they're now turning back to God from all of those things. They're repenting and turning back to the Lord. From the very beginning, listen, shepherd of Israel, you see their eyes up. Finally turning back to Him. They realize that it's their sin that's caused what they're dealing with. 
They're fully aware of that, fully aware that they need God's forgiveness. And they say in verse 18, Then we will not turn away from you. and We'll call on your name. They're repenting and turning toward him. For us, our sins are a lot the same. Idolatry. Living for and by default worshiping something other than God. We go back to our evaluations. Do we love God completely? Do we love others selflessly? Are, are we making disciples here in our church? Are we truly worshiping the Lord? Are, are we evangelistically hungry or are we just apathetic? Do we care? Our own idolatry as individuals, as, as a church. We're oftentimes, if you're honest, you're probably nonchalant about the things of God. That's a very easy temptation to fall into. There's a great deal of worldliness that exists. But if we want victory in spite of all of our failures, if we want triumph through the tears that even we have brought, we have to repent of our sins as individuals and as a church. And I'll let you know in just a few moments, I've got one more and we'll, we'll end with it. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And when we talk about repenting of sin, I can't guarantee you that God is going to rush down His Spirit and our church is going to set Callaway County on fire. I can't tell you that. But I would challenge you and encourage you. For you as an individual and for us as a church to confess and repent of any sin that is in your life or that you see in our church. And I don't mean you have to go and call anybody out. That's not what I'm talking about. But just on your behalf or on behalf of our church, you'd say, you know what, Lord? We need to repent of this. Lord, I need to repent of this. I don't have to know about it. I'm not thinking of anything in particular. But maybe you'd be so bold as to say, Lord, I, I want your revival in my life. Lord, I want your revival in this church. I'll repent of my sin. I'll turn back to you. And Lord, I pray that would be true in this church as well. Finally, we must also be restored to God. This refrain that keeps coming about in Psalm chapter 80, verse 3, Restore us, God, look on us with favor and we will be saved. Verse 7, Restore us, God of hosts, look on us with favor and we will be saved. Verse 14, return, God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. And verse 19, restore us, Lord God of hosts, look on us with favor and we will be saved. We need to be restored to God, to His standards, to His will, to His vision, to His terms, His expectations, His mission. And it's He alone who can do it. You can come and I'll pray with you, but I cannot restore you to God. Only He can do that. Only He can forgive your sins. They say, restore us, Lord, look on us with favor. And if you look at verse 17, and this will lead into our communion, let your right hand be with the man, let your hand rather be with the man at your right hand, with the son of man you have made strong for yourself. Do you know who that's previewing? Do you know who called himself in the New Testament the son of man, who is the strong ruler at God the Father's right hand? It is Jesus Christ himself their hope for restoration was the coming messiah our hope for restoration is the messiah who has come jesus christ alone he is perfect where we have failed we became just like the nation of israel we have become a useless vine so to speak in ourselves he said he was the true vine. we eat the bread of tears and jesus said he is the bread of Interesting how it's all drawn together. We are in desperate need of revival. Let's be realistic about where our current situation is. 
Let's recognize who God is, repent of our sins, and be restored to God. You, me, all of us together. I wonder today who will call on the Lord on your behalf and ours and say, Lord, restore us. Look on us with favor. Lord, the walls around us are broken down. Restore us. Who will repent today for yourself and for this church? Who will be restored to God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Who will trade in today the bread of tears for the bread of life? I'm going to ask our deacons, if they would, to come forward at this time. And we're going to take communion. And I want you to recognize and appreciate the symbolism of what we're doing. Because just as in the psalm we see we're eating the bread of tears, we in just a moment will participate in receiving a symbol of the bread of life. Jesus himself who gave up his body and his blood for us. Take the time even right now. Danny's going to play a little bit. As they're passing this out in just a moment, take the time to pray. Ask the Lord. Is there anything in my life that I need to repent of? And do it. Say, God, restore me. Anything at all, Lord, whatever it is, take the moment and spend some time with God.